Rusty Reno. I'm sitting here in First Things World Headquarters at the editor's desk, and this is the editor's desk podcast. And I have with me Philip Jeffrey, who is the author of Made for TV Politics in the November 2022 issue. Welcome to the podcast, Philip. Thank you for having me. Made for TV Politics. This is about the January 6th hearings. And let me just right out out of the gate here, compliment you on what a fantastic article. I did not believe that I could possibly read something interesting about this much commented upon, but everybody kind of says the same thing in very predictable partisan, predictable partisan ruts. But you, you really have a fresh take on this. And your argument here is that the January 6th hearings fail as politics because they fail as television. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, they just don't make for very good TV. I I, I kind of went into my viewing of these events. Oh, you're a better man than I am to have sat through the, the episodes. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it helped that I was, uh, my wife and I are, are moving into this apartment. And so there was a lot of spare time just moving boxes and furniture around so I could have something in my ear and I could sort of passively download the the information as it's being presented, which I suppose is the ideal way to experience these hearings as they were designed. I mean, you, you alluded to a sort of standard way that everybody reacted to the the, the existence of these hearings and and I think that the take that I saw a lot was that, oh, it's going to be this prepackaged narrative. These members of this committee, who are, of course, mostly Democrats, already know what they're going to say. It's going to be this sort of McCarthyite show trial of we know what we're going to, we know what we're going to say, and we're going to just sort of hector you, the viewer, about it. And I think whether that narrative that they, that the members of this committee or anybody are trying to present is right or wrong on a factual level, it doesn't make for very good TV. Well, let's back up because I uh, some of our listeners may not may not have disciplined themselves to watch this. You point out that the committee hired James Goldston, who is a TV producer, I mean, kind of TV news guy, and that unlike, say, the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, or I remember from my youth, I was 13 years old in the summer of 1973, what the Watergate hearings maybe it was 74, and uh, very gripping, that these are not live. I had no idea, by the way, that the TV things were these highly produced. Are they hour-long segments? They they varied, but they were two to three-hour segments. Two to three-hour segments, but it's the end of the week where they sum up the week's worth of hearings? Is, am I right on that? No, each hearing, well, technically each hearing was broadcast live. But they were all very clearly sort of produced and packaged beforehand. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, and and each one is sort of interspersed with these produced video segments that had clearly been, you know, obviously put together behind the scenes before the actual live congressional hearings, and even the the live portions where you know you have all of the representatives up in up sitting in the kind of semicircle facing down and, and interviewing witnesses. Even those were sort of plotted and structured in, in a very clear way that, that was repeated for each 
episode or, or each hearing. So yeah, very much put together and live, yes, technically, but not not live in the way that, as you mentioned, the Kavanaugh hearings were live, where there is this sort of oppositional back and forth and nobody quite knows what's going to come out of the other side's mouth or out of the mouth of any particular witness. It was very clear that everybody on the TV knew what was going to happen, knew what was going to be said, knew what the follow-up was going to be, and knew what the conclusion of the whole proceedings of each day uh, and of the sort of arc of the season, the full set of hearings would be. So the scripted quality, you draw on Marshall McLuhan, I think, to very good effect. And, And remind me, McLuhan thought TV was hot? So McLuhan has this distinction between hot media and cool media. And it's, it's I think, supposed to be understood in terms of, of thermodynamics, right, where something that's cold draws energy from other places and something that's hot produces a lot of its own energy and, and dispenses it. So for McLuhan, electronic media, so specifically radio, television, and he would almost certainly say the internet as well, are cool media. So they, they draw energy from their audience and from the, and from the participants in, in the medium generally. So TV for him is a cool medium that is sort of best conducted or, or best used rather in, in the conduct of a public ritual where you have people being sort of brought together in, in the same viewing and participatory experience. So I think in one place he, he mentions the Olympics as kind of the ultimate best possible use almost of television, where you have everybody from all over the world, these different walks of life, participating in the same thing by watching this live event. And the people who are being broadcasted on TV are also experiencing some of the same thing as the viewers, right? Where they don't know the outcomes. They have their particular sort of rooting interests in what's going on, but everybody is kind of participating together in this viewing experience, sort of lending their energy to the medium. So like uh, the gun goes off and 100 meters, will Ursain Bolt break the world record? Mm-hmm. Ursain Bolt doesn't know, nobody in the stands knows, and I viewing you know, thousands of miles away, made present by TV, I don't know. So we're all kind of together, <gasps> gasping. <gasps> A new world record. You know, you think about that, that sort of moment in the Kavanaugh hearing uh, when he, right, he gets very upset and, and then we're, we're, it's an unscripted moment, the people on the committee, the people in the Capitol building, and then everybody viewing are all kind of co-present together, gasping at oh, this, this, this kind of human moment. And that the scripted quality of this Jan 6th hearings are you are you so you're saying that they they make the hot medium cold they make a a cold medium hot right they try to to generate their own their own energy their own narrative their own this is an outraging thing and you should sort of feel this way about it this set of knowledge and instruction you're there to receive their heat their energy their 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 outrage, their feelings about it. You are not participating in the same way as they are. So you think this is a lost opportunity? 
it's an indication of the further degradation of the public square, so to speak. Yeah, well, I think it's certainly not helpful. Now, of course, congressional hearings serve a very important role. I mean, you keep bringing up the Kavanaugh hearings, and as as much of a, a sort of a mess as that was for everyone involved, it, it was still part of a process, and and it had some end other than just sort of generating a media spectacle, right? Like at the end of it, somebody either ends up on the Supreme Court or does not. Uh, and that has sort of real concrete policy effects. But it, it seemed to me as though for the January 6th hearings, I mean, the hearings were kind of an end in themselves. It, it really struck me that the representatives from Chairman Benny Thompson and, and Vice Chair Liz Cheney to uh, Representatives Lurie and Schiff, really everyone on the committee believed that what they were doing was itself a kind of act or performance of democracy, that the democratic process and the political life kind of consisted in, maybe they would, to, to put it charitably, maybe they would say consisted in, in holding Donald Trump and, and these bad actors to account in this this public broadcasted way, but it, it it seemed as though it was this kind of dead end. Yeah, I found that very compelling, that part of the piece, because the narrative is conspiracy, or the narrative is that Donald Trump exercised a kind of extraordinary agency to subvert the democratic process. And and you you walk through aspects of the hearings. I mean, you're you're quoting here from. Cheney, summoned the mob, assembled the mob, summoned the violent mob. He oversaw and personally participated in an effort in multiple states to intimidate election officials, et cetera, et cetera. But you, you as a viewer kind of are seeing this, because as you say, these video interludes and during the hearings, you have a wonderful pic, a scene of Donald Trump kind of staring at the TV screen and the White House cafeteria or wherever it is. Far from a man of agency able to subvert the election, he seems to be a kind of pathetic character, completely disarmed and unable to actually affect any anything. Yeah, that that's really what it is. It's uh, kind of on every level, from the former president to his sort of immediate circle of White House staff to campaign staffers to even just participants in the events of, of January sixth itself. There's really this overwhelming and inconsistent sense of just what what do we do? What's left to be done? What what else is there for us to do? I mean, I, I quoted an interview, kind of, I think, if I remember correctly, probably the first interview of one of the January 6th participants, rioters, that, that came out. And, and in this video, I, I wish I could in, in print sort of convey the tone of voice that this man had, but he asks, I think half a dozen times in just a few minutes, like, what, what were we supposed to do? Like, what, what was there left for us to do? It really, there, there was just, there were no, no plans, no deliberation, no huge, intricate conspiracy behind the events. And I think, again, that's reflected on sort of every level, every person's testimony. Couldn't even get the driver of the car to go where he wanted him to go. No. <laughs> It's incredible. There's a great line you hear. Yes, the entire last hearing before August recess was about Trump's inaction on the fateful day. 
he and his entourage did what they did because they felt there was nothing to do. They had no options, no plan, no cause, no hope. And I think that's fascinating. And also, your point, you also, you know, as the, you draw the essay, as you draw out this McLuhan uh, notion that the committee unwisely took a cool, cool medium and made it hot, that this actually winds up sort of making most viewers skeptical. Because you point out that we live in this internet age, and the internet age is an age of mocking and undermining settled authorities. And so those of us kind of shaped by Twitter and other sorts of things are inclined to roll our eyes when when the, the established authorities gather themselves to instruct us as to what is and is not the case. <laughs> Internet man, I think you described uh, this, this character is deeply suspicious of prepackaged narratives. Yeah, and I, I think the thing that McLuhan would say is that a lot of these sort of political habits are downstream of the media that, that get used. There, there's more than a few mentions in the January 6th hearings of propaganda. And I think McLuhan would say that propaganda as a practice is, is something that is very natural to a, a hot medium, right? The, the types of, of the types of media that sort of characterize the 20th century age of totalitarianisms and, and mass man style politics are hot media. It's a film produced by the regime or a piece of literature or a poster, something that has a, a, a specific thing to say to you or, or a set of instructions and sort of provides all of its own energy and tries to, to push it onto its viewers. But electronic media, I mean, television and especially the internet, are really resistant to that. Because it's, it saturates you with so much? I mean, certainly the internet, you know, social media, if TV is, is cold, so social media is, you know, something uh, zero Kelvin or something like oh, that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> because we not only provide all the energy, we provide all the content. Exactly. Exactly. There, there is no broadcaster audience distinction. Everyone is providing the content and everyone is speaking at once. And part of that, as you say, is just the sheer volume of content. It's just very easy if someone's trying to present a, a single monolithic propagandistic message, it's just very easy to drown that out. But also there is no one position of, of authority from which to, to present such a narrative in a way that it can crowd out everything else. Donald Trump was as much a participant and an audience member on Twitter as anyone else. And sure, he had more followers than almost everyone, but he, he was receiving information as, as much as giving. Yeah, I think you make a, I, I found this very compelling. Representative Kinzinger says, you quote him as saying that one of the best examples of the lengths to which President Trump would go to stay in power is that he scoured the internet to support his conspiracy theories. And you say this is a bizarre, precisely backward interpretation that far from scouring for support, 
he was scouring for theories. <laughs> I mean, he wanted to know, like, like, what can I use? Uh, you know, what's what are, what's some meme that I can exploit to try to stay in power? Not, oh, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a plan, and I've got to look to the internet for for confirmation of my plan. And he went to the internet to find a plan, which I'm sure changed daily as the internet is this kind of it's like an ocean where the waves kind of the you know the tide goes in and out in and out in and out every day <laughs> yeah and, and there's always one more statement about something that went wrong with some state's election process there's there's always one more thing right because i mean you get tens of millions of participants on the internet you can find a, a theory for anything really look long enough and then you talk about this. He argues with Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue, and Trump says, you guys may not be following the Internet the way I do. And what's going on in that? What, what's that? what is Trump accusing his underlings of failing to do? Why, is he, why does he think he's got a better handle on things than they do? Well, for, for one thing, just because he's, he's following the, the medium that for him and for Internet Man, most reflects, for one thing, the will of the people and also reflects sort of the way that things are. I think when, when Trump is using the Internet, is, is online, he's, he's looking for, for theories and for plans and strategies, sure, but he he's also sees it as a source of information, I think. He, he perhaps sees it as like this is... This is the real story. This is the stuff that's unfiltered. Because, yeah, you, you point out that for Internet Man, there's a, you know, I think this goes back to why the sort of miscalculation of, of the committee to have this highly packaged, these highly packaged hearings, these very scripted hearings. It just plays into the suspicion that the suspicion that people have that they're being played, they're being spun. And, and the internet is full of people exposing or purporting to expose. And it's, it's just more immediate as a medium. It, it puts so, so-called audience members or, or content makers in such direct and, and simultaneous interaction with each other that there's no place for, at least, you know, setting aside concerns, very valid concerns with algorithms and kind of what any given social media platform is going to feed you, it at least creates this perception that you're, you're dealing very immediately with the, the makers of content and with the sources of information. And there's, at least again, in perception, there's nowhere for the sort of external production. There's nowhere for a James Goldstein to step in and, and shape the narrative. You're dealing with kind of everything at once. On social media, you point out that elections were we got one coming up on 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 uh, next Tuesday. These are like the p- paradigmatic, cool TV moments because we're all in the you know the. I remember when Trump got elected and newscasters weeping on television. I mean, this uh, re- everybody's finding out the news in real time. But you think the internet, the internet. Social media is undermining that civic event because just as the newscasters are telling us with their big map of the blue and the red, you've got people on the internet reporting on, you know, 
some malfeasance at some precinct in Milwaukee or something like that. So what we're learning on TV is not the real story. Where, where's this, where's this going to take us as a democratic culture? Well, I think at the very least, it's taking us away from the, the sort of mass spectacle model of politics, whether for good or for ill. I mean, I think there's, I think there's a good argument to be made that elections are, are not necessarily better off for being sort of mass televised spectacles, for being essentially treated the same way that we treat the Olympics. You know, at the beginning of, of every hearing, and also at, at the end of most of them, Chairman Benny Thompson kind of gives the 30,000-foot view of, of what's this all about, what are the, the kind of stakes here, why is it that we're saying that American democracy itself is at, is at stake. And the thing he keeps landing on is that these, these mass elections are the very essence of American democracy and of the political system that we have. And while that is that is probably true, I, I think it's I think that perception of what democracy is is also shaped by the fact that it has been televised for so long and that it, it has sort of reached the the same kind of status as like a sporting event. Very much, I think, to the detriment of other forms of political participation. There's there's you know any number of of arguments to be made that the decline of local politics and civic association in favor of this sort of nationalized, you know, everybody cares about a presidential election every four years when it happens. And a lot of people care about a Supreme Court nomination or a midterm election. And certainly more people care about those than care about their local precincts or, you know, what's, what's happening down the street. Yeah, it's not an accident that perhaps that the decline of the parties corresponds with the rise of TV. You know, the precinct-based machine politics declines precisely as the TV spectacle of Election Day rises. Um, that's a good point. That's a good point. So you're kind of ending here on a somewhat hopeful note that it could be that the disintegration of the grand narrative by the Internet may force us back on the things that we can actually see with our own eyes, so to speak. Yeah, I think if if the age of television or before that, the age of sort of mass politics, hot media, kind of trained people to think of democracy as these, these sort of mass alienated spectacles where, where everybody is looking to a sort of singular nation-sized focal point. The internet trains us in, in different habits. And one of those habits as I, I try to draw out throughout the essay is thinking in terms of sort of nodes and networks. And it is a, by nature, very decentralized medium and, and presents information in a way that, that is both decentralized, but also I think draws connections where they, they, they weren't obvious before. One perhaps downside of this is that it's very easy for conspiracy theory type thinking to arise, seeing connections where maybe none exist, but I mean, I, I think also of just the, in, the, in the process of, of furnishing my, my apartment with my wife here, we, we used Facebook Marketplace a lot just to kind of make connections with people who you know, had, had a, a spare couch or had a spare chair or 
And uh, we're sort of able to use the medium in ways that connected us to our neighbors for specific purposes and, and not have to have reference to some large external thing. You know, it's not as though we were sort of flipping through this, this catalog of, of chairs and couches and such so that some company could deliver our furniture to us. It, 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 the internet, in our case, allowed for some kind of personal connection with a neighbor. And this is probably where the existence of, of internet algorithms kind of have to temper the optimism a little bit because algorithms are written, are written in a way that forces you kind of into a, a narrow box of here's your the type of content that tends to enrage you. We're going to feed you more of that. We're going to push you further into your partisan niche. But I think what that reveals is that even in the sort of seemingly infinite mass of information and possible connections to make and, and networks, it is still possible to make a specific connection over something concrete. And if we can recognize that that becomes a possibility with the internet in a way that it it doesn't when we're all in our separate homes watching on TV, if it's possible for us to actually connect with each other, then maybe that opens an avenue for connecting over local politics or some kind of civic association or a particular interest as opposed to just the horse that we're betting on in, in the big national race that we're all seeing. So I think there's hope, but it, it requires recognizing what the different media do to us and what each offers as, as well as what each can suppress. So Jan sex hearings fail as TV, but that doesn't mean that we're doomed. Doesn't mean that we're doomed. <laughs> well, thanks for a great piece. I really think this is the smartest discussion of the January 6th hearings and, uh, and also about the temptation, I think, that our leadership class has, the temptation to, to want to um, uh, preach to or lecture the American people at a time when they're just, that's just not going to work. They're, the public is just not interested in being told to get in line and, and think the right thoughts and do the right thing. So thanks, thanks for the piece. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me.